You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. I could ask you to stand if you're physically able for our New Testament reading this morning. Shall come from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As we continue on in this third chapter of this letter by Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And may the Lord take his eternal truth as revealed in scripture and implant that in our hearts this morning. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Shall we pray one more time? Oh, gracious God, your word is forever fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. And now, O oh Lord, as we study your word together, we pray that your word that is established in the heavens 
would be secured in our hearts that we might go forth and honor you with our lives. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, as you will hear me mention often, and many of you know, Harvest has supported the mission of the Hands of Compassion Children's Home in Guatemala for more than 20 years. Children from all over the region are rescued from horrific, horrific conditions, and they're welcomed into the loving Christian home that Dave and Deb Reichert have provided from the first day that they were married. Yes, the first day that they were married. I now pronounce you husband and wife. Here are your 60 children. <laughs> In all seriousness, there's a little girl that captured my heart when I was there multiple times. Her name is Candy. And Candy came into the house so malnourished that she was unable to grow hair on her head. And her body was literally riddled with cuts and scars from the machete that her father used to discipline her. In my last visit, I spent some time with a 10-year-old boy whose name was Suberio. And at that time, Suberio was unable to count to 10. And he was 10 years old. Why do I bring this up? Well, I bring this up this morning not merely to remind you to pray for hands of compassion, but as an example, an example of the devastating effects that spiritual malnutrition can have on a people, on a city, and on a nation. We see the physical effects of malnutrition there at HOC, but this morning we're going to consider the spiritual effects of spiritual malnutrition. After spending a year and a half proclaiming the gospel and establishing the church at Corinth, Paul left his fellow co-worker, whose name was Apollos, he left Apollos behind to build up the body of Christ through the teaching of God's word. But sadly, after years of faithful ministry, the majority of believers in Corinth remained spiritually malnourished. Now, we need to understand that their condition was not because they lacked access to sound biblical teaching. After all, Apollos was there, Paul was there, right? But because they had very little appetite for healthy spiritual food. We might liken them to a man who pulled into McDonald's drive through every night on his way home from work. And because his belly was full of junk food, he pushed away the nutritious dinner that his wife labored so diligently to prepare for the family. In a similar way, the Corinthians were like children, children who were so enamored with candy and cookies the candy and cookies of human philosophy that they had very little appetite for the manna of God's word. Now remember from our study last week how chapter 3 opened with these words, but I, I brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. 
But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. You sense the frustration in Paul's words here. You're still not ready to eat cereal. Hmm. Well, the writer of Hebrews, you'll remember this from our study in Hebrews, he also addressed a very similar issue of spiritual malnutrition, but that was a malnutrition that stunted the growth of his Jewish readers. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 13, he writes, anyone or everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And so it is that believers who remain on a liquid diet, only taking in the milk of God's word, never grow to spiritual maturity. On the other hand, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that solid food, yes, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so it is that through the continual meditation on God's Word, by digging deeply into the eternal truths that God has graciously revealed to us, and then applying those truths to our lives, we are then able to distinguish good from evil. So while Paul addressed these Corinthians as brothers, as true believers it becomes painfully obvious that they lacked the spiritual appetite that was necessary for these brothers to grow to maturity in the faith. Again, remember from chapter 1, the Jews were still pursuing signs and wonders and miracles. The Greeks had an unhealthy appetite for worldly wisdom, and so the church then was split or divided into factions. As we'll see in the chapters ahead, many of the Corinthians struggled in the flesh with things like impurity, sensuality, enmity, strife, jealousy. They were given to rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and yes, even drunkenness. Throughout his letter, Paul will address these issues, these issues that are, we know, as the works of the flesh. But here, here in the opening chapters of this letter, Paul is focused on the divisions, the rivalries, and the splintered aspect of this fellowship in the city of Corinth. Now, let's back up just for a minute. After taking time in chapter 2, to expound on the unity and centrality of the gospel, Paul comes back to the issue of division as he enters into chapter 3 when he asks the question, well, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And he answers his own question when he says they're merely servants. They're co-workers, co-laborers in God's field performing the tasks that God has assigned them. You see, one of them is about planting. One of them is about watering. But only God 
can bring life and health and growth to his beloved people. So the field, which is the church, that field belongs to God. And God is the one who raises up laborers to go into his field of harvest. And he is the one who will reward his people for their faithfulness on that great and final day. Now, when we get to verse 9 in chapter 3, Paul concludes one metaphor and he introduces another metaphor, a second analogy. When he writes this, he says, we, for we, that is the apostles and leaders, are God's fellow workers. We're co-laborers working together under God's direction. And you, he says, the church, well, you are God's field. You are God's building. The church is God's field. The church is God's building. And until this week, I didn't really see the connection between these two metaphors, the field and the building. I just think that Paul is just piling up metaphors. That makes sense, right? But no, there is a connection. In the expository commentary, David, uh, Andrew David Nacelli writes this. He said, Since the building, and listen carefully, since the building in verses 9 through 15 becomes God's temple in verses 16 and 17, the metaphors in verses 5 through 17, God's field and God's building, are connected as God's garden temple. God's garden temple. Now think about that. And many of you may remember from our study in the book of Genesis that when God created man, he placed him in a garden temple. Remember that? God placed Adam in a garden temple where he, who was God's prophet, priest, and vice regent, where he walked with God in open fellowship with his creator. The the garden of Eden was a garden temple where Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. And now, now, my friends, by the work of Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, the church has become the new garden temple of God, where we who believe now walk in open communion with the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. We worship him in spirit and in truth. So it is that the church is God's garden, and the church is God's temple. The church is God's garden temple. This morning, as we work our way through verses 10 through 17, I'd like to consider God's building project under these three headings. Very simple. We deal with this in every building project. First, there is the foundation. Second, there is the framework And finally, there is the final inspection, right? When we built this place, first it was the foundation, then the framework, and then, well, before we could enter in, we had to have a final inspection. So let's begin in verse 10, where Paul writes, and he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is 
Jesus Christ. Unlike the field, let's compare these two. Unlike the field where one laborer could conceivably do all of the work from planting to harvesting, the construction of a great building, especially in the ancient world, took many, many years and often a massive company of laborers to complete that building project. For example, the temple of Herod. You'll hear about that in the Gospels. The temple of Herod in Jerusalem took more than 70 years and an army of more than 10,000 laborers to build and complete that building project. Now, I want you to take notice that here in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul plays a similar role in both the field and also in the building metaphor. As the one who plants the seed, the Apostle Paul was the first worker to enter into the field, right? He's going in. He's the first one to come in, and he plants the seed. And because he was responsible to lay the foundation of the church, then Paul was the first worker to enter into the labor of God's building project. So he's the first to come. He's the first to plant seeds. He's the first to lay the foundation. In verse 10, Paul recognized that it was the grace of God that enabled him to lay the footing for God's New Testament garden temple. As a skilled master builder, that would be the architect and builder that combines in this word that he uses here. As a skilled master builder, Paul entered into this this city, and he laid the foundation, which he identifies in verse 11 as Jesus Christ, when he says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so it was that through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit effectively overturned the fallow ground in the hardened hearts of the Jews. And it was the Holy Spirit through the work of Paul that removed the rocks of idolatry from the stony hearts of the Gentiles. And this spiritual excavation was the first step in establishing a firm foundation, the firm foundation of Jesus Christ in God's New Testament temple. Paul refers back to this foundation in chapter 15 When he writes in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Here again, Paul is speaking of that foundation of Jesus Christ that he laid when he first came into the city of Corinth. And now, folks, I think it's important that we understand that all throughout the New Testament, the apostles were uniquely chosen. They were uniquely called by God to lay the foundation of his end-time garden temple. 
where Jesus Christ, of course, is the chief cornerstone. Paul expounded on this truth when he wrote to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, Paul wrote, and he says, he's speaking to the Gentiles, these believers who were Gentiles, and he said, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And listen to this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Here we have the same building process. And who is it that's laying the foundation of the church? Well, the apostles and prophets. So it is that the foundation of the church was laid, and that foundation was laid once and for all by the apostles who served as prophets, communicating God's word to God's people. And for this reason, I would submit to you that there are no New Testament uh, apostles in the church today. There are no New Testament apostles Now, there are still individuals who are sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel. We might call them be-apostles, right? Why? Because the word apostle means one who is sent out. But there was only one set of apostles who laid the foundation of the church. Those who are sent out now are not of that same ilk. Now, in Revelation chapter 21, we see this glorious image. When John shows us, gives us a glimpse of the new Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven as a bride that is adorned for her bridegroom, the foundation stones of this glorious temple, again, this is the temple where God dwells with his people, and the foundation of that temple are the 12 apostles. Revelation 21, verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you see that. The apostles were the ones who laid the foundation of the church. And there is only one time when that foundation is laid. We've built this building, and we've didn't, we have done different kinds of, of uh changes to the building, to the structure itself. We've added on to it, but there is only one foundation. We've never changed that foundation. In verse 10, Paul writes, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So here Paul speaks of the laborers who continue to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, which was laid by the apostles. Those who frame those who build the superstructure of the New Testament temple have to make sure that their work aligns with and rests solely upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the Scripture. Now, folks, the house that Sharon and I own, the house that we live in, was built in 1881. And if you were to take a trip into our basement you would see that the foundation of that house 
is more than three feet thick. And over the past 142 years, there's been no storm, no tremor that has ever been able to shake our house because it's built on a firm foundation. Sometimes when the wind blows and we're laying in bed, it feels like it might fall, but it doesn't. We've been there almost, well, 40 years. It has never fallen down. However, when we purchased our home, the previous owner added a fireplace onto the living room, and that was one of the things that we loved when we saw the house. Oh, it has this beautiful fireplace in the living room. Well, unfortunately, that fireplace was not built on the original foundation. Instead, the builders constructed a three-story cinder block and brick fireplace on a four-inch concrete sidewalk that ran a side of the building. Believe it or not, they did that. They built this massive fireplace on a four-inch sidewalk. Now, I'm no engineer. You guys are. I'm no engineer, but even I know that's wrong. That is wrong. Now, as you might expect, it wasn't long before the fireplace began to fall away from the original structure. So, well, I had to hire someone to prop the fireplace up and dig underneath of it and fill in and form a good foundation before that structure fell on my children who were playing in the yard. Well, Sharon and I breathed a sigh of relief when that foundation was finished And we rejoiced that we could now rest assured that our children were not going to get damaged by the the fireplace that fell on their heads in the yard. And that reminded me, as I was thinking about it, of the days when Ezra, you remember this, when the remnant of Israel who returned from Jerusalem, when they worshiped the Lord with loud songs of praise and great shouts of joy. Why did they worship him? Why was their joy so great? Because the foundation of the temple had been completed. How much more then? How much more should we who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, how much more should we shout for joy? at the unfathomable riches of the foundation that he has laid for the New Testament temple in which we who believe are now brought in as living stones. So we must also beware of those builders who seek to build outside of that original foundation that was laid by the apostles. And although there is only one foundation, and it is Jesus Christ, there are many different building materials that believers employ in the construction of the temple. In verse 12, we read, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble... Now, friends, I don't think it's a coincidence that this list is very similar to the catalog of materials that King David gathered in preparation for the building of Solomon's temple. He was unable to build it because he was a man of blood, but he gathered the materials so that his son then could go and build this great temple to the living God. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we read that David gathered gold, silver, and precious stones for the building of Solomon's temple. But what's different here? What's different here 
in 1 Corinthians from 1 Chronicles is the inclusion of flammable materials like wood, hay, and stubble. And throughout the church age, believers are uniquely gifted by God for the building up of the body. And we're going to study that when we get to chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians. And even today, many of the saints of God seek to build a structure that is worthy of the foundation that was laid by the apostles. We cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we measure everything in our ministry against that, that, uh, that, that stone, that cornerstone. We measure everything off of the chief cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. So every ministry in the church is measured off of Jesus Christ and the foundation that the apostles laid once and for all. Other builders, however, other builders for their own glory, seek to build on the gospel foundation using things like, well, pragmatism or, or worldly wisdom. They'll present a, a user-friendly Jesus, a, a less offensive Jesus, who doesn't speak of, well, you know, things like repentance or sin. Well, they seek to build a new temple for their own glory on this inoffensive Jesus, and they might even promise you your best life now, but according to the Apostle Paul, their works are destined to be burned. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, John MacArthur writes this. He said, the materials do not represent wealth, talents, or opportunities, nor do they represent spiritual gifts, all of which are good and are given to each believer by the Lord as he sees fit. The materials represent believers' responses to what they have, how well they serve the Lord with what he has given them. In other words, they represent our works. The gold, the silver, the precious stones, the wood, the hay, the stubble, they represent our works. Now, folks, it's important that we understand that we are not saved by our works. And we are not redeemed by religious rituals or, or by human efforts. Instead, the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian believers that every true Christian has been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. See, we can't put the cart before the horse. Works are not the source of our salvation. We're not earning God's favor here. They are instead the evidence of our salvation. And every one of us has been gifted by God to participate in the building project, the building up of the body, the construction of the framework of God's New Testament temple. We all have gifts and talents that God has given to us to participate in the building project. We are all now living, living workers, laboring together for the glory of God in the place where his spirit dwells. Through the apostles, God laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And now today we labor together in the building of the church and we must keep in mind that there is a day coming, a day coming when God will evaluate the motives of our heart 
and evaluate the works of our hands. And that brings us to our final point. When a building is finished, there is a final inspection. And we find that in verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest for the day. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So this is an individual evaluation. When Paul speaks of the day, the day, it's a specific day. He's referring to that grand and final day, the climactic event of human history when the Lord Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And like a refiner's fire, that day will serve as a purifying agent that purges everything that is impure and unholy from the lives of God's people in order that they may receive a reward, a glorious reward for the things that they have done while they're in the flesh. Certainly Jesus must have had this in mind when he promised in Mark chapter 9, verse 41, that there is a reward for every cool glass of water that is given in his name. You find someone who's struggling, you offer them a cool glass of water in Jesus' name. Then throughout all of eternity, there is a reward. If you find someone who doesn't know the Lord and you go to them in grace and hold forth the gospel, there is a reward for you in heaven. When you carry groceries in the food bank to someone's car and you put them in the car and say, how can I pray for you? Do you know Jesus? There is a reward for all of those things that will not be burned up. If they're not done in the flesh but in the spirit, then they will be rewarded. The prophet Malachi speaks of this same great day. We've read it this morning, but let me read a couple of verses again from chapter 3 and verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Oh, that great day when we stand around the throne, when we bring our gifts of worship and honor and praise to him, we will have gone through the fire. The judgment that Paul and Malachi described does not determine our salvation. Let me say that again. This judgment that Paul and Malachi are describing is not a judgment that determines our salvation. It is specifically for the purpose of reward. Paul makes this clear, and he speaks in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, when he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, listen, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Hmm. Even those saints whose labor was significantly flawed will be saved from the wrath of God. Why? Well, because of their union by faith in Jesus Christ. They are born of God. They belong to God. Their labors may have been flawed, like so many of ours have been. And nevertheless, they 
themselves will be saved. Paul tells us that although their works will be burned up in the judgment, they themselves will not be destroyed. Now, what is this like? This is, this is like a man who flees a burning building. His own house that he built with his own two hands has gone up in flames and everything is lost, but he is able to get out of the house and he himself is rescued. He himself is saved. He himself is delivered from the flames. However, everything that he built is gone. It's gone. There is no reward. Now, Paul clarifies this in his second letter to the Corinthians when he said this. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will get what we were due, whether good or evil. And so, my friends, the question is, how can you know? How can you know that your work holds eternal value? How do you know that you will be rewarded on that great and final day? How can you know that you are building with gold, silver, and precious stones? Different pastors will give you different ideas depending on what they believe are the best works in the church. Oh, it must be missions. You have to be in missions to have that great, great reward. Oh, no, no, you have to be involved in evangelism in order for that great, great reward to come. Oh, it must be benevolence. You have to be involved in benevolence in order to get the greatest and highest of rewards. Well, all of these things are great, and every one of them will be rewarded when it is done out of a pure heart. But I think the context of Paul's writing is somewhat helpful in evaluating our own building materials. In chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 4, Paul told us how he evaluated his own ministry. In verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul evaluated his preaching to determine whether or not he had robbed the cross of its power. He says, I don't want to rob the cross of its power. Well, what does that mean? Well, think about it. When you share the gospel, do you focus on the cross? Do you focus on Christ and him crucified? Or do you tell personal stories? Do you elaborate on spiritual experiences that you've had? Or do you speak of the cross of Jesus Christ? Some of it will be burned up. Some of it will receive a reward. Paul reviewed his work to see if it was done in the flesh or if it was done in the power of God. So we should ask ourselves, do we use worldly methods to build the church? I remember as a young man, there was a cult that was called the way. And the cult had a specific process of, of uh, evangelism. They would send girls to get guys and guys to get girls. That was their evangelism. Certainly if some pretty girl comes and says, hey, do you want to come to a meeting? Oh, yeah. No, that was their evangelism. I tell you, that's wood, hay, and stubble. Paul evaluated the wisdom in which he spoke and wisdom in which he acted to determine if it was the wisdom of this world or if it was, in fact, the wisdom of God. So we must ask ourselves, is our ministry to one another based on biblical truth 
when we counsel one another, do we go to the Word of God for our counsel? Do we point people to God's unchanging Word, or do I try to recollect Psychology 101 that I took as a freshman in college? Am I working on Psychology 101, or am I using the Word of God? One is gold, one is wood, hay, and stubble. The Pillar Commentary said this, said, if we wonder which criteria Paul had in mind when he described the judgment of Christian workers, we need to look no further than the values that Paul espoused and exemplified in chapters 1 and 2. Was he seeking to build his own kingdom? Or was he seeking to build the kingdom of God? Was his pattern of speech designed to impress and entertain people? Or was he trusting in the Holy Spirit to cut men to the heart with the sword of God's word? Was he seeking the praise of men or was he seeking the praise of God? Was he seeking earthly treasure, going out and preaching so that he could gain offerings from the people? Or or was he looking forward to a heavenly reward that no thief could steal? And no rust could tarnish. In chapter 4, verse 5, Paul points to the thoroughness, the thoroughness of God's judgment and the promise of his reward. When he writes this, he said, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then, only then, each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. My friends, on that great day, God will consider not only the works that we perform in the building of his temple, but he will also assess the unseen motives and attitudes of the heart that drive those motives that undergird all of our efforts. In all honesty, in all honesty, because we still carry around this body of flesh and because the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it and because our minds still need further renewing by the word of God, well, our motives are not perfect or pure 100% of the time. And we don't always walk in obedience to God 100% of the time. While none of us, none of us, if that's the standard, 100% of the time, absolute pure motives. In reality, none of us will enter into glory unsinged in some way. But Paul tells the Corinthian believers this, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Then you are building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, friends, we don't have much time, but there are two questions that Paul would leave us with this morning. And we'll just touch on them briefly and come back to them, Lord willing, next week. But first, Paul asks this question. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? Do you not know? that you are the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells within you? This tells us one thing. 
It tells us that the Spirit of God is, in fact, deity, because if God dwells in us and the Spirit dwells in us, therefore the Spirit is God. Theological point for the day. And then he asks, are you building or are you destroying God's temple? That's a question that each of us needs to concern, consider. Let's look at it as Paul words it. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now friends, the fact that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we are God's dwelling place among men, should do two things for us. It should give us two things. First, it should give us a very high view of the church, a very high view of the church. After all, it is the dwelling place of God. The church is not a concert or event that you attend when it fits your schedule. The church is not a social club where you promote your own interests. The church is not a benevolence agency where you go to get money when you're in need. The church is the dwelling place of Almighty God on the earth today. All these other things are okay. We do want to help people who are in need. But the church, you understand, is the dwelling place of God on the earth today. Second, it should promote love and respect among the individual members of the church, knowing that we are the temple of the living God, that we are all living stones who are being built into a spiritual house where God dwells by his spirit. We then should love one another as Christ has commanded us to. Our friends, God has joined us together, not just for such a time as this, but for all of eternity. For all of eternity, God has joined us together as family, as living stones. We are joint heirs with Christ in an eternal inheritance. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the bride of Christ. We are members of God's household. In the context of Paul's writing, it would be right for us to say that dividing or splintering the church in any way on the basis of human philosophy or on the basis of personal preferences, despising those who aren't in your clique, slandering those whom Christ has purchased with his own blood is equivalent to destroying the church. Isn't that what Paul is commending? These Corinthian believers for their divisions, for their dissensions, for their rivalries with one another, they are destroying God's church. And those who destroy the church, Paul says, will be destroyed by God. We'll dig more into this next week, Lord willing. But it's no accident. As we transition now to the Lord's table, it is no accident that one of the ongoing ordinances that the Lord instituted when he was with us, the ordinance that we are to continue to practice until he comes again, comes with a command. It comes with a command for self-evaluation. Oh, self-evaluation. 
We must evaluate ourselves in light of that day when God will evaluate our works. In light of the fact that we will one day face the judgment seat of Christ, when we gather together around the table of the Lord, Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself, and then so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And then he said to the Corinthians, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as we approach the table of the Lord, we must discern the body rightly. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, first, we must recognize that the eternal Son of God put on flesh and came to earth and lived among us. He lived a sinless life, and then he died as the spotless lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute for all those the Father would give to him. For all those who would believe on him, he is the sacrifice of atonement that removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Discerning the body rightly is discerning the body of Christ that he took on and suffered for our redemption. But it is also, also, that we are members. All those who believe are now members of the body of Christ here on the earth. And we are called then to love one another as he loved us. So to this Discern the body rightly is to live in a right relationship with one another. Therefore, if you have aught in your heart towards your brother, you must lay your offering aside and make that relationship right as you come to the temple. Now, here's a scary part. If your spouse is a believer, which I hope he or she is, and your relationship is not right as you come to the gathering of God's people, I would urge you to make that relationship right, to humble yourself and make that relationship right. Because after all, your spouse is a part of the same body of Christ that you are a part of, and it must be right. In view of all that we have heard this morning, let's come together and confess our sins before the Lord. Oh, Lord God, When we kept silent regarding our sins, our bones wasted away through our groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon us, and our strength is dried up as it is with the summer heat. Therefore, we acknowledge our sin to you. We confess that we have transgressed your holy law. We've rebelled against you in thought, in word, in deed, in deep humility. Lord, we cry out, forgive us our sins and restore a right spirit within us. Oh God, we trust in Christ. He is the only atonement for our sins. So we cast ourselves upon him this morning and we look to you for that grace.
My friends, as we confess our sins, Jesus is per He is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I think of the assurance of pardon, when you confess your sins before the Lord, we remember in Psalm 103, David wrote, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is the assurance of pardon that we have. If you have trusted in Christ, if you've confessed your sins to him, then they are as far as the east is from the west. And we may now rejoice together. My friends, this table of the Lord is a table that is for believers only. If you have never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for your salvation, then I would ask you, I would implore you to withhold. Do not participate today. But rather, humble yourself before Almighty God. Confess your sins, repent of your sins, and trust in the sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you may come and celebrate with the family of God around the table of the Lord. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Through it, we know you. Through it, we know ourselves. We recognize our sinful condition and the grace of Christ that has saved us. We celebrate that salvation this morning at the table of the Lord. Amen.